0: Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, and welcome to Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. On the 15th of October, the shortlist was announced, whittled down from the 13 on the longlist to just six books. In case you missed it, those six titles on this year's shortlist are One, Two, Three, Four The Beatles in Time by Craig Brown, Fourth Estate, The Idea of the Brain, A History by Matthew Cobb, Profile Books, Black Spartacus The Epic Life of Toussaint Louverture by Sudhir Hazara Singh. Alan Lane, Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, What War Does to Women by Christina Lamb, William Collins, Stranger in the Shogun City, A Woman's Life in 19th Century Japan by Amy Stanley, Chatter and Windus, and The Haunting of Alma Fielding, a true ghost story by Kate Summerscale. Bloomsbury. I'm delighted to say that we have three of the judges this year joining us today to talk about this incredible shortlist and the judging process overall in what has been quite a unique year in all kinds of ways. Please welcome this year's chair of judges and BBC Radio 4's today presenter Martha Carney, editor and novelist Simon Ings who was of course a guest in our AI episode earlier this year, and New York Times opinion editor Max Strasser. Welcome and thank you so much for being here, albeit remotely. Uh, Let's start by going through each of these uh, titles in alphabetical order. We're going to start with 1, 2, 3, 4, The Beatles in Time by Craig Brown. Uh, Max, let's start with you on this one. This is clearly a book that Um, fits in with all those books about the Beatles in which there will be a huge amount of interest because of the kind of cultural um, place that the band occupies. And I I just wonder what it was about this that made this memoir different. What made it stand out?
1: Well, it's funny you say that, actually, because... I have not read a lot of books about the Beatles and the truth is when I when I sort of saw this on the list I I was I have to admit I was a little skeptical. I kind of felt like, you know, it's a long time ago. We've sort of like chewed over boomer pop culture pretty thoroughly at this point and and you know, even I am familiar with these stories if I'm not a Beatles expert myself. Um and then once I started I started reading it, I just was kind of blown away by, uh, well, partially by the writing. I mean, Craig Brown is just, has such a beautiful, hilarious, fun voice. It's so, he's just got a great light touch, um, and he makes these anecdotes come alive and, and you feel like someone is sort of telling you the funniest story you've ever heard in your life while you're reading the page. Um, and then I think, you know, I guess what I thought was really most impressive about this book in a way is that it was – I thought it was going to be sort of uh, hagiographic or sort of dutiful. And it was, it was kind of irreverent. And, and I think that's like a really impressive feat in a biography, especially a biography of, of – uh, a group that is taken so seriously and so beloved and and has been sort of written about and, and talked about so much. To come in and sort of, you know, play around with the myth of the Beatles themselves in addition to the biographical information um, made it just something that really rose above the average biography in my view.
0: Does it feel to you like this is uh, memories of memories that we have because he he goes to all these places that are now kind of national trust institutions John Lennon's home Paul McCartney's home but there is something about the the twist that he gives all of this that 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 just makes it stand out not least because of the structure of the book the kind of the quality of of the timeline that he chooses
1: yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that's that's a bit of what I was sort of referring to when I was talking about the the playing around with the myth of the Beatles itself. I mean, he he sort of, it's, the the book is almost a meta commentary on the Beatles uh, and the place that they hold in the world, in addition to sort of telling you the story of these four men, young, really, really young men for a lot of the book, actually, which I thought was really interesting. Um, And, and you know, I love the sort of, he intersperses throughout, in addition his own visits to the National Trust sites, these kind of one-off sort of memories of of famous people uh, talking about, oh, I'll never forget, you know, um, watching the Ed Sullivan performance, for example. Um, and it just gives you this sense of sort of how large the Beatles loom in the popular consciousness.
0: Max, thanks very much indeed. Let's go on to um, Simon. Let's talk about the idea of the brain, a history by Matthew Cobb. What was it about this that that made it different to other science books about the brain? It's not like there isn't a huge plethora of books about the brain.
2: That's certainly true. There's um, several shelves in my flat (laughs) which consist almost entirely of books uh, that purport to explain or at least start to unpick the mysteries of consciousness and neuroscience. What's extraordinary about Matthew Cobb's book is that he's almost returned this debate to zero and said this is what we actually know about the brain and this is how little we know about the connection between brain and perception and cognition and the world we perceive and that's inevitable because the brain is the most complex thing we know of in the universe and he's not talking about the human brain. He's talking about any brain. He's talking about the ant brain. It's going to, he says, take 50 years before we even really understand the, the, the systematics of the maggot brain, never mind speculate on what the maggot might actually experience in the world. So it's uh, an iconoclastic book as well as an extraordinary history. It does that conventional job very well, but it does a lot more.
0: And did, you, did you enjoy learning about specific uh, physicists, scientists, uh, biologists, people who had written about the brain that perhaps we have forgotten today, people who who made really important contributions to our understanding of the brain?
2: This is one of Cobb's great strengths, is that he writes in such a humane and engaged and witty and occasionally caustic way about people from other eras whose models of the world are radically different from our own. One of the problems with popular science is that in the act of explaining the science you tend to gloss over the history and you tend to create this kind of Whig history in which there has been steady progress from deep ignorance and superstition to our current state of Parnassian understanding of the world. It's it's very useful structure for explaining the science, but it's a lousy history. And Cobb actually manages this rare trick of being a good, a solid historian and a solid writer of popular science, um, which is an extraordinarily difficult trick to pull off, actually. Um, He's very good at explaining why people who lived in the past with radically different ideas to our own, which we now know just not to be true, they weren't stupid. (laughs) They were working with less information and were coming up with concepts that, Encapsulated really complex problems in fascinating and intriguing ways. Um, It was delightful to read about Galen of Pergamon, it's delightful to read about um, um, uh, Pavlov and Sherrington and all these characters who occasionally can be quite monstrous. Um, But they're never figures of curiosity, we're always in their heads and in their lives trying to unpick this virtually incomprehensible organ.
0: One of the things that um, I suppose it's always useful to remind people listening about this prize is that the quality of the writing really does matter. Given the ambitious intellectual history that he's laying out, uh, is, is the quality of the writing accessible, lively, elegant?
2: Yes, to all three. (laughs) No question. I think it came as a huge relief to, well, certainly to me and also to some of the other judges that we were looking at, um, someone for whom this immensely complex story was also a story about people, um, about their ideas, about their lives, about their presumptions, about the way the world works and the way the brain works and the mind works. There's no secret source to writing good popular science, I think. Popular science should be judged by exactly the same criterion as you would judge um, a complex biography or a heartfelt memoir. Um, I don't think that we have to put popular science aside or into a different aesthetic category because of its ambition. That said... You're dealing with such complex ideas that there is a certain um, specialist set of things that you have to do to make popular science readable. One of them is to reduce the amount of complexity in your descriptions without falsifying what is actually going on. It's remarkably <laughs> difficult to take a huge body of information and distill it to a small paragraph and have that paragraph be in any way true. And Cobb is extraordinarily good at this. It's um, I enjoyed it as a reader and as a reader and, and journalist within science. I was hugely impressed by the sheer amount of <laughs> the sheer amount of accuracy. I'm not sure that's a phrase that makes any sense, but um, it was um, a book that you can trust.
0: Wonderful. Let's stay with you, Simon, to talk about the next book, a quite different history, Black Spartacus, The Epic Life of Toussaint L'Ouverture by Sudhir Hazara Singh. Um this is a figure that that I have read a fair bit about, but I would I would venture to suggest that he is not well known enough in a wide way. Would you agree with that?
2: I think that's true, and it it was um, to my embarrassment certainly true of me. I had read the I had read the C.L.R. James biography of. Uh, Louverture who was the uh first president of Haiti um an emancipated slave who was um taken up with revolutionary republican ideas sided with uh revolutionary France was betrayed by the French um, by the perfidious French and um, thrown into a prison without a roof and died utterly miserably. It's it's an extraordinary um, epic story. This uh, book is described as an epic life. This is also an epic book um, taking in the most uh, it's a, it's not just an epic life, it's just not a life lived at scale. It's a life of such extraordinary nuance that um, there's a whole cast of characters just within Toussaint Louverture. I think that if people are not uh, uh, aware of this figure or, or as aware of this figure as, as they should be, this book is going to make um, a, a big and welcome change to that state of affairs.
0: And it, it, you allude to the fact that it's a, a clearly a, a difficult subject to write about because the sources of uh, Toussaint Louverture's life are are both scant and scattered all over the world. How, how did that work for you as a reader, that, that you felt that this was something that felt, if not definitive, but a pretty distinctive uh, telling of this, this man's life?
2: I think it would have been possible to write uh, a rather knowing book which was more the story of how the biographer went from looking at this figure that had only scant sources available to work from to having quite a large body of information scattered all over the world. In other words, it could have been an intellectual detective story. And I'm sure, you know, that that would have actually been quite a decent way of doing the biography. But um, Hasari Singh has attempted something much more ambitious, and that is to write (laughs) a straight biography of the man, weaving together different sources and different interpretations, and recognising and welcoming and celebrating all the different kinds of Louvertures that are available to us through history, through the many biographies, through the many different um, archives and sources. And to do it in a way that keeps you absolutely gripped from page to page, because underneath this relatively conventional, if extremely rich biography you're still somehow getting the uh, mystery story you're still somehow getting the detective story you're aware of the amount of work that has gone on but it's never thrown at you in in, in great gobbets of information you're just constantly aware of this huge sort of intellectual hive of activity which is Harris himself over goodness knows how long it took him to write this book creating in the end, a picture of um, a man in the round, uh, a man who was both an idealistic revolutionary and a turncoat and um, a military genius and uh, an emancipator of slaves and a committed politician and endless, endless versions of this character gradually fused into a single complex, nuanced, identity. It leaves the reader at a bit of a struggle if they go to the pub and try and say who Toussaint Louverture is, because we really truly are getting an extraordinary picture of um, a complex individual. Um, So it's a book to... It's a book to treasure. It's a surprisingly hard book to talk about.
0: Oh, that sounds pretty uh, impressive. Simon, thank you. Let's turn to the chair of judges now, Martha Carney. Martha, let's talk about Christina Lamb's uh, book, Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, What War Does to Women. Christina, of course, a long-standing and very experienced foreign correspondent for the Sunday Times. Um, This book uh, is incredibly harrowing. Opens with the sentence, Rape is the cheapest weapon known to man. Tell us a bit more about what... What she's done here. Well, Razi, as that first
3: sentence shows you, this is really not at all an easy book to read, but it is extraordinarily powerful. And I think that one of the reasons for that is Christina Lamb's own years and years of experience as a foreign correspondent. So the range of eyewitness testimony that she brings to this book is really quite extraordinary but the sad thing she says a- again at the opening is that she in the past five years she's seen or heard about more sexual violence against women in the entire than an entire 30 years she spent uh, as a reporter but in terms of looking at this as um, a contender for our prize there's always a balance isn't there between the power of the subject matter And the writing. And I think what what is particularly good about this book is it does combine the two that some of the stories are very simply told, but they're deceptively simple and they have real emotional power. And she's gone to the most recent examples of violence against women, Yazidi women who were um, taken into sexual slavery by the Islamic State group she speaks to them, she hears their stories. And the way that these, these desperately traumatized women talk to her is, is very moving indeed. But she goes back to the idea of war and rape being used against women in war from ancient times. So she spans an extraordinary period of time.
0: What strikes me as being interesting about the approach that she's taken is that what she's also telling us is that women have been written out of history and how victims of rape have had their suffering just ignored and and then perpetuated uh, time and time again. That feels like a pretty important chronicling that she's doing too. Yes, she says there aren't war memorials
3: for women, women don't get war pensions. Very rarely is what they suffered counters a war crime. She talks about the um, international court, I think, has just one prosecution uh, for rape. Uh, and th- that was in 2019, a Congolese warlord. And she talks about, as well as the horrible violence that these women have had inflicted on them, the aftermath and in some cultures you know we all knew about the chibok girls who were taken by boko haram but i think what i didn't realize was how difficult life for the ones that managed to make it back and there aren't that many of them but they've made it back some have ended up in uh, kind of refugee camps where sexual violence is prevalent i mean can you imagine having gone through rape the first time and then think you're in a place of safety and you're not. Some of them just won't be accepted by their families because there's a sense that um, people think that the women who've been abducted have become sympathizers. That's according to one expert she talks to. They've had a, a spell cast over them. So it's the trauma that lasts lasts a lifetime. And, you know, in the view of many people who work with these women, they they won't ever recover. But what they're trying to do is to make sure that this won't happen to future generations.
0: So very difficult book to read, but uh, an important one and uh, clearly earned its place on this shortlist. Martha, thanks. Let's go to Max and talk about the fifth book in the shortlist, Stranger in the Shogun City, a woman's life in 19th century Japan. Max, tell us a little bit about the, the story at the heart of this book.
1: Amy Stanley's book tells the story of uh, one woman from a uh, priestly family in the north of Japan who was married three times and in her 30s uh, left her family behind and migrated to the city of Edo uh, completely on her own without any family support. It was a pretty remarkable thing for a woman to do in 19th century Japan. and it wasn't easy for Tsuneno uh, to live on her own in the city. And the story, uh, the, the, the book tells her story as a way of exploring, you know, what it was like to live in this period of time, What it, importantly, what it was like to be a woman in 19th century Japan. I mean, I think what's kind of amazing about this book is is how deeply, how richly textured it is and, and what a strong sense you get of uh, of what it what it feels like. I mean, I as I, I, reading this book, I, I almost felt like I could sort of like feel the snow and and sort of smell the sake and sort of you know imagine the sounds when you're when uh, when the protagonist is staying in a in a tenement um, in sort of one of these informal communities for migrants uh, in Edo. and it just you know all of that sort of sense of of the. F- the physical sort of lived experience of the period is, is, comes across very, very strongly.
0: Is there a sense that in her story we we get an idea of of uh, Japanese life in the 19th century that isn't that far removed from Victorian life in England?
1: Definitely. I think that actually does come across. I mean, you know, a lot of the a lot of the restrictions on women, a lot of the expectations of what a woman could do and couldn't do do feel very very familiar to to Victorian England or or North America. Um, and actually in a way the the experience of being a a migrant to a city is also sort of very similar, I think, to people from looking at, at at Europe in that period of time. I mean, a lot of the book is about kind of the promise of liberation in, uh, in migrating from a small town to a big town. So it's got this kind of, you know, even though it's extremely particular in, pe- in painting this picture of 19th century Japan, it also has this big universal theme of what it's like to, to migrate and what it's like to hope for something to be different by moving from a smaller town to a bigger city whether that's in 19th century or today.
0: Very interesting. I look forward to reading that one. Last but definitely not least, uh, Martha, let's talk about Kate summerscale's The Haunting of Alma Fielding, A True Ghost Story. Sounds very intriguing. Tell us about this.
3: It is so intriguing, Razia. It's one of those books that I know it's a cliche, but you literally can't put it down. And I think that was the experience of the other judges as well. Kate Summerscale of course, a previous winner of the prize really does know how to tell a story and I've already got into trouble with one of the judges for giving away the ending of one of our discussions so um, I'll be very careful about what I say about this but it begins as a ghost story and then slowly we learn from Kate Summerscale that there is a great deal more to this than meets the eye. It's a woman Alma Fielding, um, who's surrounded by poltergeists. She's living in the 1930s in Croydon, um, very much a, a book of the, of the suburbs. And then we begin, she's, it, it's a, a ghost hunter who begins to explore what's really going on in her life. And what, one of the things that is so clever about the way that um, Kate Summerscale tells the story is that she weaves in, the, the social upheaval, the unnerving times in which people were living just before the Second World War and makes links, I think, in a very interesting way between the paranormal happenings and the, the, the nervousness of society as a whole.
0: And what about the influence of things that were happening at the time? For example, the presence of psychoanalysis and Freud. Absolutely. Freud makes an appearance in the book, and he, the um, Fodor, the
3: man who who decides to investigate Alma Fielding, is someone who is initially very interested in the paranormal. But then, in the course of the way that he's his relationship with Alma and what he learns about her, he begun begins to explore the idea of the influence of the subconscious mind and what the subconscious mind. Can do when it has been traumatized in childhood.
0: Mm. All six books sound absolutely extraordinary. I want to just talk to all three of you about uh, the difficulties of bringing these uh, six, the six books here down from the 13 that you had in the long list. Since we're talking to you, Martha, now, just as the chair of the judges, I mean, how, how difficult a process was it? Did you find that judges were holding on to their special books, the ones that really resonated with them? Well, it was so difficult. I didn't realise that
3: it was going to be so difficult. But, of course, we'd had a bit of difficulty with the long list because it was down to 13 rather than 12, so we'd been a bit disobedient in the first place. And these were all books, because they were on our long list, that um, many of us really liked and cherished. And so that was hard. And and what I did was when I was chairing the meeting, I, I said, let's give a little funeral to the books which were less popular so that we could at least share why we liked them, even as we were saying goodbye to them. And um, I, for people listening to this, I do recommend looking at the whole of the long list because there are some fantastic books there. But um, in the end, I think there was a fair degree of consensus about about most of the books on the short list and that was uh, and that was very good to see and there's been a very good I mean I've been involved in a fair bit of book judging over time and I think what I've, I've enjoyed is there is a pretty good atmosphere you know vigorous discussion but it's
0: done in, a, in an amiable and, and often humorous way Simon Ings and, and Max Strasser, let's start with you, Simon, first. Did you did you feel that you had to let go of some things that you really wished should have been in the in the short list of six? Or or did you feel in the end, yeah, I've I've made my peace and I have I'm happy with laying those other ones to rest?
2: Made my peace? No, I haven't made my peace. I wake up screaming in the night, thinking of some of my favorite books that fell at the first hurdle that didn't make it onto the long list. Um this is inevitable because we are judging a prize for a book that talks about some aspect of everything. I mean, we're looking at the entire world of human books that cover the entire world of human affairs, that cover the entire physical world to the extent that we can comprehend it, that cover um, memoir of individual experiences, and how many billion of billions of our own this. Of us are there on this planet. Um, the range of contributions was such that inevitably good books were not going to speak to the taste of every juror. And consequently, good books or, or books that will change people's lives fall foul of these prizes always. And that's always going to happen. What we have arrived at, though, is not Not in any way a compromise, I think. I think it reflects our enthusiasm and our trust in each other and in each other's taste, there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of trying to understand why a book that doesn't immediately speak to you is of value. On other occasions, there are occasions where you say, this book, which is of value, trips me up for this particular reason. And so the conversations are by no means um, to do with compromise. They just get more and more complex more and more engaging and it's going to be it's going to be a bit of a wrench for this uh, this process to end to be honest
1: i had the uh, same experience as simon i actually the other day came across uh, a book that didn't make it onto the long list uh, that i'd read over the summer that i loved so much and i i found myself feeling pained about it not getting its due but i mean that said it was it's been incredible fun i mean every book on the long list was so good i loved them all it was it was painful to say goodbye but um but I think the shortlist came out great. And, and it was, as Martha said, a really consensual, pretty amicable uh, experience overall. So there were no no bloody knockout uh, fights or anything like that.
0: It, it's been wonderful hearing you talk about the shortlist. But I wonder, Martha, if we can just end by getting you to, to talk about... Um how wide ranging the list is in terms of subject matter, as well as, um, you know, where which kind of the, the way in which the, the writers are coming at it, uh, at each subject in a particular way. And, and the quality of the writing has been talked about again and again. I mean, it feels like it's an incredibly wide ranging list that you've chosen.
3: It really is. And one of the reasons I wanted to be involved in judging the prize again is because you get a chance to read books that you wouldn't necessarily Come across. I mean, I'm a great devourer of novels and will sometimes steer clear of the heavier uh, biography. But actually, these have all illuminated new worlds in one way or another. And you're right to stress the quality of writing because, in the end, the Bailey Gifford is a literary prize um, and we have to look at the writing. And, you know, somebody who densely packs in all their research but doesn't make a book that somebody wants to read outside academia just isn't going to isn't going to, to make it. So I, I, I'm very pleased with the range that we have, the different voices that we have had on both the long list and the short list. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult. I think it's going to be the most difficult thing coming up with a winner.
0: Yeah, I, I don't envy you having been a judge on this prize. I really don't envy you this moment between now and when you have to decide on on the winner. So I, I can only say thank you for joining me today and also very, very, good luck uh, with whittling it down to, to one. Um, thank you, Martha, Simon and Max. That is all we've got time for today. The 2020 winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize will be announced on the 24th of November in a special, sadly, virtual ceremony. Do join me next time when I'll be speaking to the winner. And to keep up to date with the latest news about the prize and for more information on this year's shortlisted books, follow at BG Prize on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can also sign up for the newsletter through the website. Please also keep your eye out for the weekly live stream at 5pm every Wednesday, focusing on each of these shortlisted books. And in case you miss the shortlist live stream, you can still watch it on Facebook and YouTube. As always, thanks to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for supporting this podcast. Till the next time. Bye bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.